0: Mr. Zaspel has been with the Bunyan Conference ever since its inception, and he has been not just one of the speakers, but one of the people who did a lot of organizing and a lot of work, so we're very grateful. He recently, within the last two weeks, was it? What's that? When did you get your degree? I was on the 8th. Huh? When? April 8th. April 8th. He became known as Doctor. Doctor. I asked him if I had to bow or kiss his ring. (laughs) He says, no, just bow. (laughs) That we do congratulate him for the hard work. And uh, maybe one of the first or one of the newest additions to the Biographies to China will be the message tonight. That would be a good idea. So welcome Fred Zaspel tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you. It is so good to be back. I had to miss last year, and it was the first year and that was the first year in probably twenty years that I had to miss the Bunyan conference and it 's good to be back with you. Several of you have mentioned that you pray regularly for Gina and for us. I just if i haven 't expressed it to you already, I want to say it again I just can 't tell you how much we appreciate and how much we 've come to appreciate friends who pray and it 's a tremendous blessing and I can tell you that while the Lord has not been pleased yet to heal her, uh, he has heard your prayers, and in the largest way, uh, Gina's spirits have been just an amazingly uh, kept up. The Lord has just been amazingly gracious in that regard. Overall, uh, she's been, remained very encouraged in the Lord, and that's, that's simply a miraculous thing, and the Lord has been gracious in that regard. So the Lord has heard your prayers, and we thank you for it. In regard to the PhD, I have a friend who teaches in one of the universities in the Netherlands and he promptly put me in my place. The theory behind a PhD is that you're to take some tiny slice of knowledge and master it so that you're the best in the world on that. Another way of saying that is, you know almost everything about almost nothing. (laughs) But my work has been in the uh, uh, area of B.B. Warfield of old Princeton. I used to tell people that I thought I knew the Bible. Now all I know is Warfield. There has been some conjecture about whether or not B.B. Warfield did, in fact, invent the B.B. gun. I'd like to say, just for the record, that while there is no historical evidence to support that, I believe it. a little bit more seriously. Open your Bibles, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. A passage that I'll return to at the end of the message, but to set it in the As a setting for Warfield's ministry, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, We thank you for giving us examples of men in the past who have been faithful, have kept your word, who have taught your word, men on whose shoulders we can stand as we serve you. We ask that you will help us this evening to learn from this one of your servants to serve you as well. In Jesus' name, amen. If you're not already acquainted well with the study of historical theology, you might might be asking, why do we take time at a conference like this to look at men? Men outside of the pages of Scripture, for that matter. It's certainly a fair question. The simple answer is, God has given us teachers. One of God's gifts to the church is that he's given us teachers. And some of those teachers, frankly, are worthy of more notice than others. Sometimes it's because they're heroes, sometimes it's because they're zeros. Usually the heroes receive the more notice, we hope, and particularly them. Um, It's not hero worship, I trust that it's not, but it is helpful for us to learn from heroes of the past, and I think in a way not unlike what we find in Hebrews chapter 11. At critical moments in the history of the church, God has been pleased to raise up critical figures, men who have spoken with particular clarity to a given issue which has helped the church. For example, we have an Augustine who is the theologian, the theologian of sin and grace. It's not that Augustine had, has uh, invented that doctrine for us, but certainly in his controversies with Pelagius, Augustine was such a watershed moment in the history of the church that he still towers in influence in the church today because he's the one who gave us, essentially gave us, the doctrine of sin and grace. And whatever has been added to it since, it still is just something of an outworking of Augustine's... Uh, teaching of sin and grace. Or for another example, Anselm, the theologian of the atonement. He's the man who gave us the doctrine of satisfaction. And again, he didn't invent the doctrine, but his exposition of the doctrine of satisfaction was of such significance that, well, he's been towering in influence ever since. We have, of course, Luther, the theologian of the doctrine of justification, Uh, John Calvin, the theologian of the Holy Spirit. There have been noted men like that who have stood up and given us doctrines in such a way that it's just a watershed moment in the history of the church. In that sense exactly, B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, that's a mouthful, B.B. Warfield is the theologian of the doctrine of inspiration. It's not that he invented the doctrine. In fact, he argued that at some great length that he did not invent it. He's simply passing on what has been taught before. But he did give it such a massive defense and such a massive exposition and such a massive exegetical grounding that every discussion of inspiration, well, put it this way, no discussion of inspiration since has been complete until it has taken Warfield into consideration. Whether you're pro or con for his doctrine of inerrancy or against it, if you are for it, you're probably not saying anything that he hasn't already said. If you're against it, you've not finished your criticism until you've dealt with Warfield, and that's the kind of uh, estimate of him that's recognized by all sides. He's a figure that is just impossible to ignore. He was the theologian of the doctrine of inspiration, and that was his gift to the church in the Lord's good providence. The problem with that that I've just said is that while it's accurate, it just doesn't come anywhere close to an adequate portrait of The stature of Benjamin Warfield. Warfield was a theologian whose depth and breadth of grasp was almost without parallel in the history of the church. His learning and his scholarship was just massive. His career took place, as you know, at Old Princeton, already a land of giants, but even among those giants, he stood out, and that was the recognized opinion of of all who knew him. And at a critical juncture in the history of the church, God raised him up to do a work that was of singular importance, and we'll see some of that. Our purpose this evening, then, is just to provide something of an introduction to his life and work, and then something of an appreciation of his stature in the history of the church as well. Princeton Theological Seminary opened its doors in 1812 with just a small handful of students and one professor, Archibald Alexander. It was Archibald Alexander, then Samuel Miller, and then the great Charles Hodge. The seminary grew, the faculty grew. It quickly became recognized as the great center, not only of, of Christian higher education, but a center of Christian higher education that was entirely committed and loyal to the truthfulness of scripture. It was powerfully influential in the Presbyterian church and beyond. It was influential in virtually all denominations and internationally as well as in America. Old Princeton was sometimes dubbed the Oxford of America. A long succession of giants were there to teach, as I mentioned, Archibald Alexander, Samuel Miller, Charles Hodge, Joseph Addison Alexander, A. A. Hodge, uh, William Henry Green, these men came through there and just of enormous stature. And we can't expand on it here, but it's difficult to overstate the influence that that seminary exerted for a period of 100 years or so. It was just massive. And not just in terms of its scholarly literary output either, but at, through that school, an endless line for over a century, an endless line of, of missionaries, pastors, Bible translators, and such came out to carry on the work of the ministry all over the world. There's one story about a student who had been at Princeton, went to study in Germany, as so many did back in those days, to study theology in Germany. He told his professor that he had already taken a given course and studied it at Princeton under Charles Hodge. Would he still get credit for it? And the response he got from his professor was, you get credit, we should give you double credit for it. That's the stature of old Princeton. And all this about old Princeton is especially significant given the times it stood out significantly as a scholarly bastion for truth in an age of encroaching unbelief. We have very little biographical information about B.B. Warfield, especially for such a noted figure as he is. He wrote no autobiography. There is no biography of him written yet. There's one that's in the works too, perhaps. Um, All we have, really, is correspondence of his, a few reports from students and those who knew him at the time. One nightmare, a historian's nightmare, uh, after Warfield had died, his brother, uh, Ethelbert Warfield, told his son, Ben, who was named after his uncle, who was then a student at Princeton, I want you to go and pick up Benny's papers and bring them home. And so he did, and there they stayed at, at their home for some time. You'll probably recognize the name John Meter. He's one who collected the selected shorter writings of Warfield. He was a Warfield aficionado as well. John Meter one day drove to the home of Ethel, Ethelbert Warfield's widow. And as he drove up the driveway, she's out at the incinerator, tossing these papers into the incinerator. And he goes over and greets her. How you doing? What are do you doing? Oh, just getting rid of some of Benny's old papers. And Of course, he stopped her what had been lost and then before that, what had been lost in a flood in their basement. We have his uh, correspondence up to about the turn of the century, but some of what we know of was very important correspondence after the turn of the century. We don't have, it's lost. But in another sense, as helpful as that kind of thing would be, in another sense it's okay because Warfield really didn't do a lot. He wasn't an activist. He was a theologian, and all he did was write theology. And his legacy is in the many and endless line of published works that he produced. His output was just enormous, something like 15,000, 20,000 pages, something like that. The basic facts about Warfield, very quickly, he was born in 1851, Lexington, Kentucky, He was in, his father was a very successful cattle rancher, it was something of a privileged upbringing, received a private education at home, he took a particular interest in science and mathematics. Uh, It was a home, Ethelbert reports, of vital piety, the children learned the shorter catechism by age six, immediately followed by the proofs for the catechism and then immediately also with the larger catechism and so on. He made a profession of faith at uh, the Second Presbyterian Church in Lexington at age 16. And as I say, his goal at that point was to pursue a career in science. He had an insatiable appetite for reading scientific literature. He devoured uh, Darwin's works when they came out. loved science and was sure that he was going to pursue science as a career. He was so sure of that, that when it came time at home in his education, his private education at home, when it came time to learn Greek, he protested. I have no use for Greek. And Ethelbert reports something of humor, youthful objections in our home didn't matter much. And so Warfield learned Greek, whether he liked it or not. Ironic for the man who was to become one of the leading Greek exegetes of the day. In the late summer of 1868, not quite age 17, he entered the sophomore class at the College of New Jersey. That's now Princeton University. Warfield recalls his father was a bit apprehensive. They spent some uh, vacation time Uh, away from Lexington, going to Princeton for a couple of weeks. Finally, they arrive in Princeton where his father's going to leave his young son, still just 16, off at the university. And he says, I recall that my father was a bit apprehensive about leaving his young son alone at the school. But he says, as we arrived in Princeton, we noticed a lot of Fine hunting dogs, English setters. And my father, he said, was just enamored with him and he would stop and pet the dogs and he would test them as their obedience and their abilities and whatnot. And his father's reticence about leaving his son alone in Princeton just vanished. He said, any place that's got so many good dogs has to have good fellows. And then Warfield says, with just a bit of uh, humor, my dad never stopped to inquire whether there was any connection between the dogs and the college. David Morris will like this. At Princeton, Warfield's friends, imitating his southern drawl, called him (laughs) Woefield. The school records at Princeton indicate that uh, Warfield was involved in a Sunday afternoon fist fight, and it seems that Warfield was the instigator. Seems that during a, a chapel service at Miller Chapel in, at Princeton, this is a, um, when he's an undergraduate, he's drawing some kind of caricature of a friend of his, and it wasn't very flattering, that's all we know. And so he's showing it to him, and he's showing it to others, he's taunting the guy during the chapel. And after it was over, they went out on the lawn and settled it like men. Evidently, however, uh, it's Kind of good to know those human sides of guys like this, but evidently he applied himself very well as a student overall. We are told that he received foremost, foremost rank in every department of instruction. His brother Ethelbert reports that he had perfect marks in mathematics and science. He graduated with highest honors, first in his class in 1871 at the age of 19. He also won awards for essay and debate in the American Whig Society, And he was an editor of the Nassau Literary Magazine, for which he wrote several poems and other pieces as well. Following graduation from his undergraduate work, his father persuaded him to pursue graduate work in in Europe. And so in 1872, he began studying in Edinburgh and then in Heidelberg. Midsummer, the family was surprised when they received a letter from Warfield still in Europe, telling them that he wanted to come home and study for the Christian ministry. They had had no inclination, uh, no hint of that at all before. They didn't know that he was even considering that. But Warfield writes and says he wants to go into the Christian ministry. During his undergraduate work at Princeton, he had a, uh, been there during a, a great revival that swept through the school that no doubt uh, had turned his thinking that direction. Many of the young men uh, from Princeton uh, College went on to uh, the Christian ministry as a result of that revival. And one friend of Warfield recalls that Warfield expressed that he felt compelled to go into the Christian ministry simply in order to in some way repay the debt of love that he felt he owed to Christ. So in 1873, after a brief stint as editor of the Farmer's Home Journal in Lexington, Warfield entered Princeton Theological Seminary, and there he is studied under the very revered, highly respected, and now very elderly, Charles Hodge. He also studied under Caspar Wister Hodge. He was Charles Hodge's son, who's professor of New Testament at the seminary, and they established quite a link together. In fact, C.W. Hodge became something of a mentor of Warfield in those days and a very tight friendship that lasted. After graduating from the seminary in 1876, he was stated supply pastor in Dayton, Ohio at the First Presbyterian Church there. Now that brief stint, it was just for that summer, but that brief stint is of interest to us in that it provides for us the earliest piece of biblical or theological work that we have from Warfield. And what happened was, and his, I think it was his first Sunday preaching there the editor of the local newspaper was there and he printed the sermon, the text almost in full. Warfield saved that for us, otherwise it would have been lost to history. He kept scrapbooks thoroughly of of all of his works. And that he has, and he notes at the top of it that the editor was a skeptic. And you can see something of that in some of the notes that the uh, editor makes about Warfield's sermon. But it's an edited text of Warfield's sermon that appears in the newspaper he is at age 25 at this point and uh, he took his text interestingly from Romans chapter 3 and verse 4 let God be true and every man a liar and what he does in the sermon it's, it's fascinating it's a topical sermon but what he he takes is that theme of God's truthfulness a note that would mark his entire career this note of God's truthfulness and he holds it up against the various mysteries of the faith, whether it's the Trinity or whatnot. Is it difficult for you to understand? It's okay. Let God be true. Every man a liar. And he held it up against all of the objections against the faith that had been brought, difficulties that have been brought against the faith. And he simply affirms with supreme confidence, but with the humble faith of just a believer saying, let God be true and every man a liar. What God has said is so. Warfield notes that the editor was a, a professed skeptic, but the editor's report of the sermon is interesting. He says, we devote a considerable portion of our space this morning to a sermon preached by Mr. Warfield in the First Presbyterian Church Sunday morning. Those who are interested in the topics handled and a joy clean-cut, positive thinking expressed in good, strong English will not regret the space it occupies. It is thoroughgoing. Old-fashioned Calvinism, with no ifs or ands or buts about it. It is refreshing in its freedom from the sickly sentimentalism which forms so much a part of what seems to be the modern fashionable religion. If a man believes in hell, we like him to believe in a good hot one. And (laughs) And to chuck those in who belong there without any squeamishness about it. Well, the sermon was hardly a hellfire and brimstone sermon, but it was bold, old-fashioned Calvinistic orthodoxy, which the editor commends as well. He says, when a man pretends to believe in God's foreknowledge, we like to see him stick to it. Well, again, in the sermon, Warfield held up the theme of God's unerring truthfulness in light of the various mysteries and difficulties that have been brought against the faith. The Dayton church issued a unanimous call asking Warfield to become their pastor, but he declined and determined instead to study again in Europe. He was married on August 3rd, 1876, to the brilliant, we are told, brilliant, witty, and beautiful Annie Kincaid. And then they took up their travels to Europe and he took up studies in Leipzig. Uh, Annie was the daughter of a very prominent attorney in Lexington, one who, in a case in 1855, defended Abraham Lincoln. Warfield uh, endured extended health problems that hampered his study while he was in Germany, but uh, he he was able to study under such names as Adolf von Harnack, who would become, of course, his arch-opponent in later years, and then the famous Hebraist and Old Testament commentator Franz Delitzsch. Uh, just as an aside here, in the brief biographical sketches that, of Warfield that you see in some of the books, there's often a statement about Annie that she was an invalid their entire married life. It does not seem that that degree of debilitation began until about 1893. Uh, the Warfields would spend their summers vacationing in the Poconos, and uh, trying to ransack the newspapers of the day, I came across uh, a brief notice in the New York Times dated May 1, 1892. It notes that on April 30th, Mrs. B.B. Warfield, Mrs. Woodrow Wilson, other prominent ladies from Princeton served as patronesses at a lecture event that was sponsored by the American Whig Society in Princeton the day before. So she was up and about at least that late. Now then, a year later, we have a published piece from Warfield on the doctrine of inspiration. And it says at the heading of it that it was in Staten Island, New York, that Warfield sent this paper to be read for him. He was not able to attend himself, it says, due to family illness. So evidently around the time, 1892, 1893 is when her illness became so severe. There are reports of Annie's ill health from others at Princeton that knew the Warfields at the time. And from all accounts, Warfield was a devoted husband and a very happy marriage. We get the picture from their correspondence of the two of them sitting there in the evenings in the uh, uh, living room, uh, reading their own things, sharing back and forth. She was quite a sharp gal and they enjoyed great fellowship together. And for many years, as I'm sure many of you know, he didn't leave home at all, more than a couple of hours at a time, he would go teach and then come back to spend his time with his wife and to help her. And in the providence of God, no doubt, that was one thing that played into his time that he had for research and writing so extensively on so many subjects. While Warfield was studying in Europe, Western Theological Seminary in Allegheny, that is in pittsburgh seminary contacted him offering him a position teaching in old testament that was his first love he turned them down and now his interest had turned to the previously despised greek the young couple returned home in late 1877 again he was stated supply pastor this time at the prestigious first presbyterian church of baltimore and while he was in baltimore a letter came from Western Seminary again, this time offering him a position teaching New Testament, a post that he took up with great eagerness and a real sense of responsibility. By the early 1880s, Warfield already had begun to gain international recognition as a force for conservative reformed scholarship. Most notably, I suppose, at those times were the two articles One, the one he co-authored with A. A. Hodge, the son of Charles Hodge, the article on inspiration, a landmark article. And then another one in 1882, Warfield just 31 years of age at this time, the canonicity of Second Peter. I would like to take time to explore those articles, particularly the canonicity of Second Peter, uh, just to give you a flavor of the kind of research, the kind of scholarship that he was displaying at such an early age. Uh, But we don't have time for that. You'll just have to take my word for it when I say that this was groundbreaking work. It was brilliantly insightful. It gained notice all over the world. Um, We have reports of people in Britain and whatnot uh, raising their eyebrows of who is this young guy coming up. It was portending of the brilliant career that very obviously lay ahead for him. In 1886, at age 35, he became the first American to publish a textbook on New Testament textual criticism, and again, a title that gained accolades from from all quarters. In 1881, the Theological Seminary of the Northwest in Chicago offered him the chair of theology. He declined. But then in early December of 1886, a letter arrived dated November 30th, arrived from Princeton. It was a letter from C.W. Hodge, Caspar Wister Hodge, and it was a, an event that would, of course, define his life. It was otherwise highly unusual that such a historic and prestigious chair as the chair of theology at Princeton Seminary would be offered to such a young man, just 35 at the time. But they wrote, and I, I have a copy of the letter, and C.W. Hodge writes... Um, with tones of deep respect, deep affection, telling Warfield we are not, writing on behalf of the board, we are not considering anyone else. Would you please at least respond telling us that you won't dismiss this out of hand, but that you will consider it prayerfully. Warfield writes back with deeper tones of honor and respect and thanks for the honor that they've showed him and says he will consider it prayerfully. After it was all decided and, and happened, C.W. Hodge writes to Warfield again and said, A.A. Hodge, by the way, had died uh, on a, uh, prematurely, really. He was not an old man, but he died of some health complications, and so the chair had been uh, vacant. And C.W. Hodge then writes to Warfield and says that his sister had quipped, well, who better to follow A.A. than B.B.? And it's interesting that while letters of congratulations poured in from everywhere, it was was fun reading through all of these letters from all over the world that came in uh, congratulating Warfield on the appointment, not all of them were entirely pleased. And the reason they weren't all pleased about it was that while what the Department of Theology was gaining, the Department of New Testament was losing. And many people have said, then and today as well, that if he had stayed at Western, stayed in the Department of New Testament, he would have no doubt have been one of the great New Testament commentators of the era. In fact, there's a letter I read from John Broadus at Southern Seminary in Louisville, um, interesting letter, a touch of humor in it, and he says to Warfield that I have told my students in class for, he was a New Testament professor at the time, I've told my students in class many times, that you will prove to be one of the great New Testament commentators of the day, and he says, now, because of this, he says, you will convince all of my students that I'm not a prophet. Another interesting letter was from William Robertson Nicole, who, as you know, edited the Expositor's Bible. He writes to Warfield, and it's very respectful, very cordial, congratulatory, and all of that, but he's not happy, and it's clear that he's not happy. Uh, It's cordial, but he's not terribly pleased, and he says to Warfield, I do not release you from your contract uh, providing the commentary for the Expositor's Bible. Evidently, there was an agreement. Uh, We don't know what it was, but he never did fulfill it. But he tells Warfield, you owe this to the Department of New Testament that you've left. But evidently, Warfield was not convinced. But the congratulations were unanimous, and all of them, just unanimously expressing uh, great hopes of things that had come from him at Princeton. the theology department warfield was not the first in his family to uh, either to attend or to teach at princeton his grandfather on his mother's side robert jefferson breckenridge had attended there briefly his that is uh, r.j breckenridge's brother warfield's great uncle john breckenridge had attended there as well and then taught there uh, some decades before his great-uncle John Breckinridge, by the way, was the son-in-law of Samuel Miller. In fact, there there's another more interesting story, some connections. Uh, there, was, there was considerably bad blood between uh, Robert J. Jefferson Breckinridge and Charles Hodge uh, for some years. Um, Breckinridge was a leader of the old-school uh, Presbyterian Church, and Hodge was recognized as that as well, but there was some perceived betrayal on the part of of Hodge. Interesting story in itself. But there was uh, later on Breckenridge would become the founding professor of the new Presbyterian Seminary in Danville, Kentucky, and it seemed to be a, a, a take more significance than just that the Presbyterian Church needed a new seminary out west. Um, the bad blood between him and Princeton was considerable. And so he was there, and this is the, the feeling in the family, and we read some of it in the correspondence as well. And so when Warfield is prof- uh, takes the professorship of theology at Princeton, it was uh, ironic from the standpoint of the family, but also they, they just loved it, and uh, the family was full of high praise and pride as well. So in 1887, he assumed his appointment to the theological department at Princeton, and he does so with an expressed sense of sobriety, and responsibility quite appropriately he moved into the house of his predecessor Charles Hodge right next to Alexander Hall. Back up quickly and to put all of this in context his career in context it of course was the day of the heyday of old liberalism old to us not to them we can only take time to glance at it quickly the late 18th century and all through the 19th century was a time that was marked by dramatic change. Political, philosophical upheavals, scientific, technological advances were making dramatic changes in life and culture on virtually every level. It was a day of change. Learning itself, new understandings were coming at record pace. and In the academy, new ways of thinking were being advanced in virtually every department, including, of course, the Department of Theology. It was a new and enlightened world marked by the most extreme kind of optimism in regard to the potential of human learning, human abilities, the human mind. And At the heart of the Enlightenment ideal was the contention that human reasoning, rationality, is the final arbiter in truth a great potential for the human mind. It is clear that we've accomplished so much and we're going to do so much more. And so the human mind becomes the last court of appeal. Two uh, two upshots of this that were important for the theological world. Number one, as I've said in so many words already, the relocation of authority. It was up until that point, it was that revelation was final authority what God has said what God has revealed was final authority now the final authority is the human mind rationalism a rejection of external authority Warfield complains about that throughout that one of the chief marks of his day the rejection of external authority the human mind is the last court of appeal more basic to that is naturalism not only a rejection of external authority but a rejection of the supernatural. It was a day of belligerent naturalism. Look at all that we've accomplished. Look at all that we can do. Look at all that we no doubt will do. Enter Charles Darwin. And we're asking questions now of just how much involvement does God have in this world? Did he create? How did he create? Was he really that involved in the giving of scripture? And so on. And it's this naturalism and the rejection of external authority brought with it attacks against the faith at virtually every point and on virtually every conceivable front. Many professed Christians at the day were convinced that Christianity just will not survive unless we make adjustments to this new way of thinking and to accommodate modern thought. What we need, they said, what we must have if Christianity is going to survive, is a faith that is more suitable to the modern mind, one with which science, which of course is never wrong, with which science can not find any objection. So it was a day of theological change and some new terminology was being bandied about. Phrases that you've heard, They were rather new in that day. One was progressive orthodoxy. That phrase gave Warfield a headache. He said, if we mean by progressive orthodoxy, a progressive understanding of what has been revealed, we are for that and we ought to pursue that. But the phrase is used, he complained, in ways to justify all kinds of things that are so clearly opposed to what has been revealed. And it is not progressive orthodoxy at all, but simply explaining or attempting to explain modern thought in terms of Christian language. Another phrase that was used was the phrase essential Christianity. What we must do, what we must do if we're going to survive is rid ourselves of all of these things that are so offensive to the natural, to the human mind. That is miracles, things like incarnation, things two natures, these kinds of things are offensive to the human mind. We've got to be rid of it, rid of those kinds of things, but preserve what is essential to Christianity. And so any part of Christianity that was deemed unwelcome to the modern mind was just freely rejected. And just a couple of samples here. Uh, Harvard Dean uh, Will- Willard Sperry uh, tit- wrote a book entitled uh, Yes But. Christianity is the Yes But. Religion, Yes, I believe in the deity of Christ, but the language of Chalcedon has become meaningless. Yes, I believe in the virgin birth of Christ, but the important thing is not any biological fact, but the value of Jesus for us. William Robertson Smith was a uh, flashpoint of the new theology in the Church of Scotland. And when he was told that he had been accused of denying the deity of Jesus Christ, responded very famously, How can they accuse me of that? I've never denied the deity of anyone, let alone Jesus. Traditional terminology was used, but clearly with different meanings attached. And that was the theological world of Protestantism at the close of the 19th century. Christian faith had come to mean many different kinds of things, and Warfield complained a word, in this case Christian, a word that can mean anything to anybody is a word then that means nothing. H. Richard Niebuhr famously described this theology as a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of Christ without a cross. Well, you can see very quickly why inspiration and the nature and character of scripture had become the issue of the day and for Warfield, it constituted a struggle for the very heart and soul of Christianity. Take away external revelation, take away the supernatural, and you have no Christianity left, no matter what kind of Christian lingo might remain. And that was the turning point of 19th century theology. And this was the theological world into which God placed the career of B.B. Warfield. And one of the points that Warfield pushed with great vigor was that the rejection of supernaturalism and the rejection of external authority is not an idea that you can advance without consequence. It necessarily entails everything else. It's not as though you can reject the supernatural, reject external authority, and still have something like Christianity remaining. For example, he wrote, Of course men cannot thus reject the Bible to which Christ appealed as authoritative, without rejecting also the authority of Christ, which is thus committed to the Bible's authority. That is to say, questions of the nature and character of Scripture necessarily entail questions of Christology. Warfield pushed this point over and over again. We cannot have the Jesus of the Bible unless we also take with it the Bible of Jesus. If Jesus declared... The scripture cannot be broken, thus affirming biblical infallibility. How can we claim to be followers of Jesus and we, unless we, with him, affirm the scripture's trustworthiness? Or even more fundamentally, he pushed, if Jesus appointed and endorsed the apostles in the founding of the church, how can we profess to be A follower of Jesus unless we submit to the canon and the teachings that these apostles have imposed upon us. Issues are not just bibliological but they are Christological as well. But of course to keep up with the times we have to reject the external authority and so liberalism by various kinds of arguments began to limit the authority of Christ also. These arguments centered, of course, on the various kenosis theories of the day, where Christ is divested of any binding authority. The Son, in his incarnation, divested himself of deity and became, as Warfield likes to call it, a shrunken deity or a godling of some kind. But he certainly was not God himself. And Warfield would argue that these creative evasions do not change the reality of the case. It's all or nothing. And so he offered this massive defense. Many people think that most of his work was in the doctrine of inspiration. It's a major part of his work. But he put much more work into the person and work of Christ. This was Warfield's center. This was the heart and soul of Christianity in his thinking. And this is where he, his, his most extensive output was in the person and work of Christ and gave a massive defense of the two natures of Christ, the deity of Christ, and so on. As I say, this for him was the heart and soul of Christianity. Now, it's interesting, I think, to see the Lord's providence in moving Warfield to such a prominent Place at Princeton at this critical junction uh, juncture of history and i 'll give you just a feel for that his range of of scholarly learning was obvious to everyone. It extended, and this is just almost unheard of, it extended over every theological department. Warfield was equally ready and comfortable answering questions of the historical Jesus, questions regarding the newest scholarly methods of criticism, the tools of investigation, and so on, as he was uh, dealing with the history of any given doctrine, whether Tertullian, Augustine, Calvin, Westminster Assembly, the Westminster Divines, the teaching of the various Westminster Divines, uh, uh, Jonathan Edwards, Phineas, Perfectionism, the canonic theologians, the latest re, um, alterations to the doctrine of the Trinity, the latest alterations to the doctrine of Christology, all of these things, and then, of course also his own given department of systematic theology. Judging from his citations and footnotes, it seems that he read more of his theological opponents than he did of his comrades. He was manifestly an independent thinker, a theologian of the broadest scholarship and his reputation attracted many students to Princeton from around the world. It's increasingly recognized that at the turn of the 20th century, nobody was doing theology as B.B. Warfield was. He was equipped with all of the tools of modern scholarship, thoroughly abreast of all of the latest theories and methods of the critics. He was seemingly exhaustively read in all of the various theological disciplines, whether a friend or foe, deeply informed by the Historical development of all of the various Christian doctrines, uh, patristic, Greek, Latin, Reformed, Modern, German, Dutch, French, English. He was up on all of it. And most of all, he demonstrated throughout his career just a massively exhaustive, exegetical grounding for the historic faith. Warfield was not only a well-informed theologian, he was a theologian perhaps without any peer. He was certainly unsurpassed in all of the English-speaking world. There were others at his time, around his time frame, fighting the same battles that he fought. There's Charles Spurgeon, there's J.C. Ryle, Horatius Bonar, James Orr. All of these stood faithfully for the same cause, but there was no one as broadly equipped, no one as deeply informed. His depth and breadth of his grasp was just staggering. He eagerly took all comers and eagerly stood up for the faith, answering on all fronts. It's been said with only slight exaggeration that in this heyday of liberalism, it was B.B. Warfield who propelled orthodoxy into the 20th century. Intellectually, academically well equipped with the literary output of an Augustine or a Calvin, he was just a towering figure in the counterattack against liberalism He was simply one of those rare scholars who seems to dwarf all others around him. And that's not just uh, an opinion that I, I have myself after reading him. I took the time to scour through the various theological journals of the day. And it's interesting how the other writers of the day so often, it would be too much to say they do it always, but so often seem... To be writing as though they feel that Warfield is looking over their shoulder. Uh, often you'll find, just by the way, remarks, uh, not only citing Warfield as an authority in a subject, which we still do today, um, but, but remarks about, uh, in a review of a book, for example, the professor at Princeton will not approve of this book. Don't even give his name, but the professor at Princeton. Uh, the professor at Princeton will be pleased with this. Or things like that. And you find remarks like that throughout. And you get the sense that they felt that he was just a towering figure. In one article, um, W.H. Griffith Thomas writes to rebut Warfield. Uh, he had written some articles, of course, on uh, the higher life and the deeper life. And Griffith Thomas had written to rebut Warfield. And he, he feels the necessity to spend the first page um, Giving credit where credit is due, every time we pick up a uh, a page from the pen of Doctor Warfield, we are we are helped by it. We've learned so much from this man. That kind of of a, a, a credit given to Warfield before he gingerly and carefully goes back to show where he disagrees with Warfield, and even then, it's um, you know perhaps Warfield hasn't hasn't seen this or does never terribly critical. Of course, his greatest critics would, um, but within evangelicalism, at least they they held him in that high of regard, and his. Critics on the outside as well held him in high regard and very rarely, very rarely came against him in print. There's one story told by Charles Brokenshire who had studied under Warfield, said that he had a friend who uh, went from Princeton to another seminary and the seminary professor, no, it was, it was Brokenshire himself who had gone from Princeton to study at another seminary and one of his professors began to interact critically with Warfield and he said some years ago, I wrote an article uh, criticizing Warfield, and one of my colleagues warned me not to write it, because if you do, Warfield will tear you up. He said, I didn't listen. I wrote it, and my colleague was right. Warfield tore me up. When Warfield came to Princeton, the school had already long and widely been recognized as a land of giants, as I say, but it was Warfield who had raised the bar still higher. Caspar Wister Hodge, Jr., that is the grandson of Charles Hodge, who taught with Warfield 20 years in the theological department at Princeton, said on his inauguration to the chair that it was Warfield who excelled all of the illustrious professors at Princeton before him. He was without an equal in the entire English-speaking world, which is quite something coming from a Hodge. John DeWitt was a man recognized for his scholarship as well, taught church history at Princeton, He said said on one occasion that I have known in my life, intimately known, the three great Reformed theologians of the past generation. By that he meant Henry Boynton Smith, William G.T. Shedd, and Charles Hodge. He said, I'm convinced not only did Warfield know more than all of them, but I'm disposed to say that he knew more than all of them put together. And it's interesting then the centennial celebration at Princeton Praises came in from around the world, and so many mentions—not only in the correspondence that came into Princeton, but also in the speakers at Princeton for the event. So many of them mentioned that the leading ornament of the school was Warfield, and you expect you expect praises for the past professors in the history of the hundred years of the school, but so many of them mentioned Warfield as well. When Warfield died. Machen, who was his student and then younger colleague at Princeton, Machen remarked that Warfield had done the work of ten men. And he lamented that there was not a man in the entire church who could fill one quarter of his place. Well, that was the esteem in which he was held in his own day. It was certainly because of his Exhaustive acquaintance with biblical, theological, scientific, philosophical literature. He constituted the high high water mark of the already unsurpassed old Princeton. But, valiant as he was for truth, and capable as he was in defending the truth, certain as he was that it would finally triumph, Warfield himself seems gradually to have seen the cause in his own denomination as lost. Old Princeton generally and Warfield's role in it was enormous, seems to be what was holding back so long, the encroachment of liberal thinking and unbelief in the denomination, but the undercurrent was always there, and within a decade after Warfield's death, uh, liberal currents of thought would gain prominence not only in his denomination but also in his beloved Princeton. Warfield one time walking down the street met the wife of the president of the seminary, J. Ross Stevenson, his wife, and she said, Dr. Warfield, I hear there's going to be a a trouble at the General Assembly. Do let us pray for peace. And Warfield responded, I'm praying if they don't do what is right, there'll be a mighty battle. But then Machen reports that in a conversation with Warfield just weeks before he died, this is Machen's last conversation with Warfield, he said, I expressed some kind of hope that there'd be some split in the church at the next General Assembly where we can start over again. And Warfield responded, you can't split rotten wood. And Machen said this was Warfield's opinion that the church had fallen irreparably into naturalism. And after Warfield's funeral, Machen remarked in a letter to his mother that I felt as they carried Warfield out, old Princeton went with him. And it seems he was right in that. One of Warfield's closest friends was Gerhardus Voss. It was their regular practice to work together for uh, to walk together the streets of Princeton uh, for refreshment and for fellowship on December 24th, 1920, Warfield was walking along the sidewalk to the Voss home. Gerhardus Voss's son, Johannes Voss, reports this. Um, and he was walking up the sidewalk to the house and stopped, grabbed his chest, and fell with a heart attack. It was just a few hundred yards across the campus from his, his own home. He spent the next few weeks recovering until Wednesday, Feb- February, 20, uh, February 16, 1921. Then he went to his class, thought he could teach again, went to the class, lectured. His last lecture is on the glories of the love of God in Christ in sending his son to die for us. Gave his lecture, went back home, and in a few hours had died. One student remarked that Warfield had passed into his bright and happy reward where he can continue his studies for eternity. Well, hurrying on, it's not enough, and I wish I could expand on these at length, these would have to be different, uh, separate lectures, but it's not enough merely to note that Warfield's, to note his intellectual and academic distinction. In Warfield's own heart and mind, first of all, he was not a scholar. First of all, and I wish I could think of a better way to say this because I know you're gonna think, well, yeah, duh. But in his own heart and mind, Warfield, first of all, was a Christian. Uh, Again, on one level, that's a given. But it truly is a distinctive of Warfield. His massive learning, his intellectual and academic accomplishments self-consciously worked out from a distinctively Christian center. And I'm going to give just two quick illustrations of that, uh, observations to illustrate the point. First of all, Because Warfield was so vigorous in his battle against unbelief, some have characterized him as fearful, even in panic fear that his beloved tradition would be lost. Of course, that's not so subtle slur comes from those who don't share his theological convictions They just don't understand him. But nothing could be further from the truth. And the fact is Warfield always writes with a robust confidence that what God has said is true and cannot be but true and so therefore never can be and never will be successfully proven wrong. Indeed, it will conquer. And it just doesn't seem to occur to Warfield's critics that Warfield was genuinely and deeply persuaded by the truthfulness of the Christian gospel and had been dramatically affected by those truths. And he was deeply convinced that precisely because Christianity is revealed religion, divinely revealed, it cannot in any sense ever be proven wrong. And out of a genuine zeal for saving truth, divinely revealed, Warfield brings together all of his intellectual and academic powers to its cause. And it really was not just the faith of a massively learned theologian supremely convinced that he had all the facts on his side. It was that. But more basic to that, and you see this in him all the time, it was simply the faith of a humble Christian who simply takes God as his word. If God has said it, it is true. And we would be fools not to believe it. And so what is surprising sometimes to... Uh, people is to find that Warfield was not afraid of criticism he in fact invited criticism bring it on we want to see the critic. bring all that you have against the Christian faith a Christian faith that can't withstand criticism is good enough to save your souls anyway bring it on we're glad to see it and he gladly took comers from all sides and what he said was we do not say that people in glass houses shouldn't throw stones We're glad they're throwing stones. We should be happy to encourage them in it. After all, the thing to do is get the glass houses all smashed, and this mutual stone throwing is likely to accomplish that desirable end and is therefore to be heartily welcomed by us. And then he says, there is a house, not glass, built on a rock. And when the stone throwing is all over, it's likely that this house will be found standing alone. Illustrating that kind of confidence in an article in 1900 entitled The Century's Progress in Biblical Knowledge, Warfield makes reference to what was the experience of believers, so many believers, at the beginning of that century when this rationalism had first begun and they're so scared of all of these new advances. And he says, and he remarks that at the end of all of that, look where we are. We've advanced in biblical learning more in this century than we ever have in any century previous to this. And that despite all of these who have come against us. And he writes, the 19th century received the Bible from the dead hands of 18th century rationalism into hands that were cold with fear. It hands it on to the 20th century with the courage of assured conviction. It has not been a century of quiet and undisturbed study of the Bible. Fierce controversies have raged throughout the whole length, but fierce controversies can rage only where strong convictions burn. And amid... Or rather, by means of all of these controversies, knowledge has been increased. And after them all, we can only lay our hands on our mouths and say, God fulfills himself in many ways. The very wrath of man has come to praise him in this sphere too. And the Bible has emerged from these fires as out of all others, without so much as the smell of smoke on its very garments. In short... Warfield was convinced that there was such a thing as truth and error. And for him, it was very simple. Whatever God said, that was true. Anything that contradicted it was error. And so while he would invite the critics to do their best, he would not at all allow that the criticism was legitimate simply because it was called modern criticism. Nor does he allow that simply because a belief has come under criticism... It can no longer be held. He says, if we're of such sensitive disposition that we dare not assert or believe or to be true what some acute or learned critic affirms to be impossible, we may as well strip off at once all of our Christian garments. There's nothing that hasn't been criticized. The problem, he insisted, was not that the Bible could not withstand criticism. The problem was that the supposed errors that these supposed critics had supposedly found in the Bible reflected not a defective faith but a flawed criticism. They would begin with a naturalistic presupposition that would predict predict their own findings. Ahead of time, it would not allow any contrary evidence to get in the way. And he writes, I love this, with a truly Herod-like indifference, they have murdered a host of innocent facts which stood in the way of their purposes. It's just not honest, critical investigation. And of course, it was the exposing of those kinds of flaws that... that marked his career. What stands out about Warfield then is first, his humble trust in the revealed word of God. Two, and this I, I would just love to draw out at great length, his heart of adoration for Christ. In his own heart of hearts, B.B. Warfield saw himself simply as a rescued sinner. He understood Christianity from top to bottom to be a redemptive religion. He couldn't say that enough. Christianity is a redemptive religion. And correspondingly, his heart beat hot for his glorious Redeemer. It surely is not a coincidence that his last lecture was the topic that it was. There's a worshipful tone that marks Warfield's works, one that frankly is uncharacteristic of such high scholarship When he speaks of the Bible, he loves to describe it as a redemptive event. He loves to speak of the privilege and the honor that we have and the confidence that we can have in having the scriptures which are a guide for our wandering feet. When he writes of the nature of Christ's work, he articulates with care not only the exact nature of Lutron and Apollutrosis and so on, But he's very eager to say that Redeemer, this title, Redeemer, is the one of our Lord's titles which most stirs the affections of the Christian. Because here we learn how it was he has saved us. When he defends the two natures of Christ, he not only provides massive defense, massive critique of the opponents. But he loves to say, the Christian heart, the Christian heart cannot do without either the God or the man. We must have both the God and the man in the person of Jesus. And then he will say things like what the the gospel writers present to us is not a shrunken deity. But what the gospel writers do, and this is one of his favorite phrases, is they present before our adoring eyes. One who is fully God and fully man. One who, because he was man, is able to pour out his blood for us. One who, because he is God, that blood has infinite value to redeem. And because he is both God and man, we are able to say, he says, with the Apostle Paul, that God has purchased his church with his own blood. And then he'll add, and if he, if God has not purchased the church with his blood, In what shall we, his church, find as a ground of hope? There is this worshipful tone throughout his writings, and not just in the kinds of articles that were written for the Princeton Review, but for the articles that he would publish in enemy territory as well. Yale church historian Sidney Alstrom characterized Warfield's works as lifeless. And there's only one response that I think is appropriate to a remark like that, and that is, He just hasn't read Warfield. I'd love to draw that at great length. I plan to in in another lecture another time. We have to leave it there. Warfield said of Calvin, it was not the head but the heart which made him a theologian. It's not the head but the heart which he primarily addresses in his theology. So also with Warfield, he was a theologian of the heart and tones of adoring worship of Christ mark his work everywhere. I think it is significant that Warfield published a sermon on 1 Timothy 6 verses 20 and 21, which we read at the outset in his last book of published sermons just a few years before he died. And he stresses in that that... as. Paul comes to the end of his letter to Timothy after he has given him all of his specific instructions regarding specific duties in the pastoral ministry. He comes to the end and it's like he wants to sum it up. And summarizing it all, he says, Timothy, hear the sum of the whole matter. Be faithful to the gospel that is committed to your trust and shun all of those pretentious shows of superior learning, which is proving to be a snare so many that which is committed to your trust the deposit this is a word for the gospel he notes it is deposited into our care another word that's regularly used in this connected with this is the word witness the gospel is deposited the minister is responsible to bear witness to that deposit It is not our responsibility to originate anything. It is our responsibility to bear witness to that which has been deposited to us or entrusted into our care. And he preaches from this text the responsibility of every man, particularly the minister, to keep what has been committed to us and not invent anything new. And the way we keep it, he points out, is by shunning all opposing ideas and contradictions of falsely so-called knowledge. He doesn't deprecate knowledge. He promotes knowledge. But any knowledge so-called that contradicts this which has been deposited into our care, you may safely assume it is falsely so-called knowledge. And you may reject it out of hand. And this is interesting because this sermon then assuming as it does the complete truthfulness of god's word at the end of his ministry and then the first piece of work that we have from warfield is his sermon in dayton let god be true and every man a liar well this is what marked his entire career a career of fidelity to scripture his critics called him outdated out of touch not keeping up with the times But he never feared in the slightest that God's word would at any point ever be successfully proven wrong. And it just never entered his mind that he could do anything but simply keep that which is committed to our trust. This was the Apostle Paul's command to Timothy. It's his command to every minister of the gospel. And Warfield would say for us this evening, I'm sure with great eagerness that we may be very sure that in the end, this truth will stand above the ruins of all that sets itself against it.